Welcome back to another episode of And Another Thing, the podcast that is continuing to sweep the nation in popularity, and not only Canada, but also around the world. My name is Jody Jenkins. And I'm Tony Clement. I was just looking up our numbers, Jody. We are number 32 in Botswana. <laughs> That's good. Last week, last week we were spiking in Senegal, and now we yes. are climbing up the charts in Botswana. So that, uh, that is very encouraging and exciting all at the same time. Tony, I wanted to ask you a quick question because I think a lot of people are thinking what I'm thinking. And have you made the premier Premier's Cheesecake? Doug Ford, of course, releasing his recipe last week for his cherry cheesecake. Have you made the Premier's Cheesecake? I have not, but it looks. I've I've watched the video, and uh, he's uh, he's pretty good around the kitchen. I got to say, <laughs> I don't know. I think somebody in my family noticed he was using the lo- the wrong measuring cup at one point. But if that's the worst you can say about Doug Ford, that's you're doing okay. I think. I will say the best part of the video, in my opinion. By the way, I haven't made it yet, but it looks delicious, and I would make it. I thought it was a great video, but the best part was at the end when he was tasting it, and he was la- like, he was like that was authentic. Him laughing at how I think it was a combination of how silly he might have known this video was and how good the food was, but it was. I thought it was bang on it was great he's very self-deprecating about uh, his weight uh, i remember uh, he's got a cottage near where i live in muskoka and some we sometimes find ourselves at the same uh, general store which has ice cream and so i remember when he was campaigning for premier in muskoka he'd say oh and there's tony clement we meet at uh, we meet at the ice cream place and he says i know i really shouldn't go there but <laughs> that's where that's where we meet up so <laughs> he's uh a bit self-aware that way, which is part of his charm, right? And yeah, and, and then of course the new liberal leader for Ontario, Stephen Del Duca, does a follow-up video, teases it as his own recipe, and then ends up slamming Ford. And in the process, I mean, I'm not there yet, but in the process, he might have actually lost the next election for sure for the Ontario Liberals, possibly. It, it was <laughs> it was just sad. It was it was sad. as I say, cringeworthy, oh. and uh, you know. So, some some guy advising Del Duca, the liberal leader, would say, hey, I've got a good idea. Ford's doing this. We should do this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, where's you got to have your antenna up when yeah. you're a politician. He did not have it up for that. He actually should have done a recipe like and it might have worked. But I, I was like, I'm watching it and it was like a slow moving train wreck or something. It was not good. And um, no, no. And especially it's so derivative too. like, OK, Ford's already done that. You can't you can't best him on that. Try something else like yeah. do it do a Zumba class or something. I don't know, but uh, don't don't just try to repeat what Ford did. <laughs> Zumba, that would have been good too. All right, so <laughs> we have a, a great guest today. You've lined up another amazing individual to join us on this show. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, good friend of yours, and I'm going to let you introduce him because I'm sure you've got a bang-up intro for him. So let's bring him on the show and have a chat. Well, it's uh, my pleasure and our pleasure to introduce to our audience uh, uh, the Honorable Pierre Polyev, who's a member of Parliament, of course, and he is the finance critic or the shadow finance minister for the conservative opposition in Canada's parliament. Pierre, welcome to our program. Great to be with you, Tony. And it's great to have you on. I know this is a 
this is an interesting time to be in politics and in parliament. I, I've got a very general question, kind of COVID-related. I know you're, uh, you've got uh, a great family and you've got a, 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 not a newborn but a toddler child. And what, what keeps you motivated when you're, when you're dealing with all of this COVID uh, stuff uh, for the last uh, few months, uh, yet having to do your job uh, in parliament? Uh, what what gets you up in the morning? Well, listen, I, for me, it, this is um, goes to the core of where I got into politics, which is to to, to restrain government. You know, now more than ever, government power is out of control. It is uh, government now controls well over half of the economy. Uh, if you consider spending by the federal government is up to a half a trillion dollars. Um, the provinces are probably about the same and the economy has shrunk. So literally more than half of the economy is now under the control of the government. They, they get to tell us where we can go, when we can go there, how close we can stand one next to the other. Um, I don't think in Canadian history, outside of conscription, we have ever had so much government control over our lives. I mean that literally. Uh, and so uh, now is the time you need opposition MPs to fight back and to restrain the excesses of state power. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of a, a small government libertarian and uh, I'm in parliament. So parliament's job was created to restrain government. And that's what that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, fighting to restrain government so that people can reclaim their freedom. I noticed that uh, Justin Trudeau once again uh, recently demurred when was asked whether it's time to bring back all members of parliament and have uh, full parliamentary accountability. Uh, are you starting to get a sense that people are getting concerned about that? I know that's a process question rather than a results question, but it goes to the fact uh, about parliamentary accountability. Is this, is this a, a graver concern now? I don't know if the public follows the, uh, you know, parliamentary sittings, how much we're meeting and whether we should be meeting more or less. But I do detect that people are, they have serious questions about the government's actions and, uh, and they want those questions posed directly to, to the prime minister and his cabinet. You know, right now, Trudeau's got it made. He, he walks out of his cottage he gives a he reads pre uh, prepared notes. He takes uh, approved questions from approved media outlets um, with no follow up to speak of. Um, he can't be properly grilled. He simply uh, he gets a question. He ignores the question. He reverts to talking points. He does that for about 10, 15 minutes. He goes back in the house and he's done. Um, you know, that is much more enjoyable for a prime minister than going into the House of Commons and facing a true cross-examination from skilled parliamentarians. And so he has been very wise, politically wise, in trying to avoid that setting and keep the battlefield uh, where he wants it, which is um, in front of his cottage. Uh, you know, and um, so it's hard to hard to blame him for the political tactic of trying to Bring, to, to shut down Parliament and keep uh, keep the show in, in front of his cottage. 
that has worked very well politically for him, even though it's terrible for our democracy, for our economic recovery, uh, and for our health. Do you see that uh, the government has become almost so used to this light accountability that it's starting to affect uh, their uh, their the quality of their decisions? And uh, what I'm thinking of is when you grilled uh, Bill Morneau, uh, our finance minister, on the question of what is a balance sheet. And that became kind of must watch for political observers when you and he were going back and forth. I'd like you to, to, you to describe that exchange and uh, really the import of that in terms of accountability, but also in terms of substantial decision making. So what I was words matter. And Bill Morneau has said to Parliament 20 times that we can find in the Hansard records that our balance sheet is strong. And so often words in politics get used in a non-literal sense, and then they become meaningless. So I kind of thinking, well, what is a balance sheet? I mean, everyone thinks just a balance sheet is just a, a general term you use to describe your overall financial health. But no, it actually has a specific meaning. It is it balances assets against liabilities and equity. And you have a line down the middle of the page, and on one side you have assets, on the other side you have liabilities and equity, and the two equal uh, right down to the penny. That's why they balance their balance sheet. Um, so I thought, okay, if the balance sheet is so strong and the minister was, feels comfortable saying so 20 times to the House of Commons, surely he would know the numbers uh, of the three main parts of the balance sheet, the assets, the liabilities, and the equity. Uh, it turned out he didn't know any of them. Um, and so I dig further, and I can't find where the government of Canada publishes a balance sheet. You would have, might have something to know uh, to say about that because you were the Treasury Board president for so long. What it it does is per, it publishes a consolidated um, a consolidated list of assets and liabilities, uh, and uh, but that isn't quite the same as a balance sheet. And but if you look at that and you build, uh, if you you actually construct a balance sheet out of the government's published numbers, what you find is that we have negative equity as a government, negative equity of nine hundred and sixty-two point three billion dollars. So that is the net worth of the government of Canada, as expected, as projected by the parliamentary budget officer for the end of this fiscal year. Now we often, this is another example of where words are misused and abused. We call that the federal debt, but Tony, it's not the debt. The debt would be our liabilities, which are roughly one and a half trillion dollars already. Right. Then what we, what we call the federal debt is the assets minus the liabilities. And what that gives us is this negative number that is actually our net worth as a government. And right now, the government of Canada is worth not, roughly negative $962 billion. Our assets are roughly half of what our liabilities are. Now imagine that. Imagine if your mortgage was twice the size, twice the, the value of your house. That, that's kind of what we have in the federal government. 
And 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 this is important because uh, you know we, we I think taxpayers deserve to know how bad it is that they that they have to pay for that negative equity of nine hundred and sixty two billion dollars. Now I couldn't obviously go into all this detail in a five minute Q and A with the minister, so instead I just chose to give him an option. What option one was to answer the question and admit how bad things are, or option two was the which is the one he chose was to avoid all of the questions and show himself to be ignorant of the very numbers he boasts about. Um, so uh, there, it wasn't just a gotcha moment. It was an attempt to make a very serious point about the abuse of words and about the the terrible state of the, of the nation's finances. How uh, difficult it is it to convey to the Canadian public the importance of uh, of uh, budgets, uh, balanced budgets, budget deficits, national debt, uh, because I think that uh, you know Trudeau, when he first got into power in 2015, he he explicitly ran on a platform of quote a modest deficit, which was at the time uh, unusual for a politician to even admit that. Even the NDP didn't uh, want to campaign on that. And so it, it became validating to have a deficit. Now, of course, he's blown the doors out of uh, out of deficit spending. Uh, I dare say, I, I, I feel that I'm the last successful budget cutter we've ever had in government in the in the latter Harper years. That was my role to to cut budgets so we could get back to balance. Nobody else has really attempted that. Is that a tough argument to make to the public right now, Pierre? It is. Um, so what, what has happened in the public debate on deficits is that you know, Milton Friedman, the great uh, classical economist from the University of Chicago, said that the problem with Keynesian economics is, is not so much the Keynesian theory itself, but the the ease with which it is abused. And so, you know, Keynes said you, you you can run deficits in down times in order to stimulate the economy and bring it back to life. Well, those people who just want to expand government have mutated that theory into, into something different, where they say deficits create growth all the time. Therefore, when you run a deficit, you're actually doing something good for your economy. That's the argument that they make. And it's kind of like saying, you know, if you go to um, McDonald's and stuff your face with a Big Mac and uh, a, a massive ice cream cone every day, well, you're doing something great for your health. Um, you know, um, it's something you wanted to do anyway. <laughs> and now you've somebody has given you license through the through a twisted crack uh, theory that you're doing something good for yourself at the same time. And so a lot of people allowed themselves willingly to be convinced that deficits are actually they're not just fun because you're spending money you didn't have to uh, pay in taxes, but they're actually good for the economy. They're the responsible thing to do. Of course, we know that's nonsense, um, but it, it is very persuasive to tell people you can have something for free. And by the way, it's good for you. And uh, of course, the, the, the same we always end up uh, crying the same tears uh, at the end of it all. Um, um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, Kipling warned that uh, that 
people, human nature is such that we make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Uh, and in his, in one of his great poems, he wrote, just as the dog returns to its vomit and the sow returns to her mire, the burned fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. And here mm. we are, we're going to be burnt again by debt. How do you then as a, as a politician, as the finance critic, how do you get through to the public? And uh, let me let me advance a theory. One of the things that you're very adept at, uh, aside from these wonderful analogies you like you like to do on Big Macs and ice cream and pizzas and all these other things, uh, you you find a way to cut through as a politician uh, and and get to the essence of the matter by some other analogy. And I, I'm going to use the case of the cottage renovations where you are out there saying something really is amiss here. There's a, I think you had a drone shot of uh, Justin Trudeau's cottage and how it had metastasized and expanded. Uh, and then obviously the story came out that it, that was what was in fact happening secretly. And so there's a case where most people would say, wait a minute, why is that the priority right now rather than the, the financial crisis and the economic crisis and the COVID crisis? Is that... Um, is that something that you do to to draw the line between government conduct and how it uh, it can impact on our society and give people a workable analogy? Because, you know, a uh, trillion and a half dollars is not something that anyone can conceive of. Well, with, with uh, you know, Trudeau's um, country residents, what there were a couple of things that really bothered me about what he had done there. And uh, first is, I reject the notion that criticism of the government is suspended during a pandemic. Um, look, uh, nobody denies that the overwhelming focus should be on people's lives and livelihoods. But that doesn't mean that the normal criticism of a government in a democracy is suspended. And by the way, this notion that took off in March and April that we shouldn't be criticizing the prime minister uh, during a pandemic. That was practiced nowhere else in the world, right? Like labor right. and the media have been savaging uh, Prime Minister Johnson in Britain. The Democrats have been attacking Trump in the United States of America. It was, it's only in Canada with the highly insular uh, media that sees its role uh, as, as providing a protective cocoon for Justin Trudeau that we that this idea took off that we weren't supposed to criticize the government about anything, period, let alone about or, the, or even, the more or even question thing. or even question the government or even question. Yeah, exactly. You know, as though as though if the prime minister were questioned, somehow our public health would be endangered. Um, anyway, so so that's the first point. This the second point is on Harrington Lake. I do believe that prime ministers should have a country retreat because frankly, it's very hard for them to get any kind of a vacation anywhere they go in the world. Literally, they're going to be besieged by people who want to talk politics and, and it's very hard for their families. So I, I don't begrudge that. What angered me were, were, were two things. One, he specifically wanted the Harrington Lake mansion, the primary mansion to be renovated to a certain standard that he remembered in his childhood. And mm -hmm. so we're spending a fortune on that. And then he was angry that 
he had no place to vacation during that renovation. So he said, I need you to build me another interim mansion where I can recreate for the next couple of years. Um, uh, so please do that. And then on, uh, so, and, and people said, you know, this isn't his mansion, it's for everyone. Well, no, it's not, it's for him because by the time there's another prime minister, the main mansion will be renovated and people and those prime ministers will will stay there where we literally spent this money so Trudeau and his family could have a place to enjoy for the next two years. No other prime minister will live in this this house. And then the third thing is that they tried to cover it all up. First, um, they they completely omitted any any publication of this, uh, the fact that they were building this new structure. They just didn't mention it. And then when I tweeted out aerial imagery showing that there was this gargantuan new uh, building on the property, they sent out liberal MPs to say that I had doctored the pictures and made it all up and that there was no building there. Uh, and then, you know, uh, a few days later, they'd been, OK, it's a building. But what it is, it's an old shack that was for the caretaker, which we 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 literally just um fixed it up a little bit and moved it up the street. I thought, geez, that sounds like a strange thing to do. You've got a, a caretaker shack and you moved it half a kilometer from where it was previously located. And by the way, this must have been one hell of a caretaker shack because uh, it's bigger than the previous prime ministerial mansion. And and so then, you know, I, 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 the story died down for a little while. And finally, the Globe and Mail looked into it and found out what they did is they picked up some morsels of the old shack moved it up the street, and then built a massive mansion, almost twice the original size, um, uh, all around it uh, with a, a lakeside view. All of this to say, what they really did is they just built a new mansion for the prime minister. And if they had just published that at the outset, I think there might have been some squabbles. Maybe the Taxpayer Federation would have put out a statement or something. By and large, though, I think most folks would have said, okay, fine, he's got to have a place to go and stay. But at least they're being honest about it. So it's often, as is often the case, the cover-up is worse than the crime. And it's a good indicator uh, that uh, this is something that people can understand. And so it helps drive your message, if I dare say, that uh, we should be reviewing spending and we should be reviewing spending decisions by the government. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, for uh, I had a CBC reporter say, you know, uh, isn't it terrible that the Conservatives didn't spend more keeping up P24 Sussex Drive? Apparently, uh, this CBC reporter said it's going to cost $80 million to build 24 Sussex. Now, again, I do believe we need a beautiful, uh, stately, impressive prime ministerial residence. This is where we receive the top world leaders for diplomatic uh, and social engagements. But Tony, I, for the life of me, cannot understand how any residence should cost $80 million to build. Even if it's the most palatial and spectacular, I can't understand how you get to $80 million. There are whole neighborhoods with hundreds of homes where the total value of all the homes is not $80 million. So it just now, why does this matter? $80 million is not a, a large share of the overall budget of the government of Canada, but it shows how bloody expensive it is for government to do anything, right? even build a house. You know, like if I went to a contractor in my riding and I said, could you build 
a spectacular stately residence for $5 million, they'd say, hell yeah, that would be easy to do. But for some reason, when government does it, it costs 30, 40 times as much. And that multiplies throughout the entire system and costs Canadians an extraordinary. That's one of the reasons why we as conservatives believe in small government, because the, 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 the private sector, the entrepreneurs and workers who labor in it, can produce so much more value for so much less money. I'd like uh, my colleague Jody to jump in here because I know I know he's chomping at the bit. Uh, what are your thoughts on all this, Jody? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I am still here, so I did. I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, secondly, we do know that the majority of that eighty million can be chalked up to white tigers and pandas. So let's let's not forget about that either. There is a uh, prime ministerial zoo that is contained on the grounds. Pierre, I have I have two. Quick- I well, I, I've got an idea then how they could pay for it all. They could bring they could um, bring Joe Exotic up, Carol Baskin, and, uh, and Carol Baskin. Use, use the uh, Netflix royalties to pay for the for the prime ministerial mansion. See, See? we got to get creative. See, now you're thinking. Now you're thinking. Now you're thinking. All right, yeah. I got two two quick things here because I know we're almost out of time. One is on the leadership, and I know that uh, you were involved at the beginning. Put your name forward. And then uh, obviously had a change of heart, which totally respect um, not to pump your tires. I think you would have been better than any of the four we have now. But that's a whole other story. But do you ever look at the candidates or the race to date and go, "Mm, wish I had done it? Or are you completely, completely good with your decision right now? I I think uh, we've got some good candidates. Um, You know, Peter McKay was a strong minister in the Harper era. Um, he has experience in foreign affairs, defense, and justice. Um, Aaron O'Toole is a is a veteran himself. Served briefly in cabinet. Um, very, he's got a business background. Um, Leslin Lewis is turning out to be um, a, a, a very impressive candidate. I think she's. She, if you read some of the material she's putting out, she's connecting with people on a deeper level than traditional talking points. Uh, and I think she's one to watch. She might outperform expectations. Uh, she, she's put forward a lot of very interesting, uh, unconventional arguments. And if you, you, you read the, the messages that she's sharing, uh, I believe she's, she's really connecting with people on, and their values rather than just their political and policy decisions. So watch for a surprise showing from her. And, you know, Derek Sloan has had some some controversies, but uh, I, I think some of his uh, some of his controversies may be overblown by by the media. So, um, look, let, let's see what the people say at the end of August. And uh, I'm confident we'll get a good leader out of it. And I look forward to supporting him or her. And were you upset that the guy you were backing, Rick Peterson, had to drop out? <laughs> I wasn't backing anyone, but uh, <laughs> I understand. Uh, I know. I look. Rick's uh, Rick's a great businessman, good guy. He, he, I don't think he got the signatures, but uh, that said, uh, um, I think I, I do believe there should be a high cutoff to get into these races. You know, um, the previous race it was too easy to get in, and therefore you had too many players. Um, if you can't raise three hundred grand and you can't get three thousand signatures, you probably can't become prime minister. So. I think the cutoff was actually justified. Pierre Polyev is our guest. And before we let you go, there's one thing I want to do. And I don't know if Tony has any other questions, but 
it's kind of like a badge of honor to have you go at someone in question period. So I, I want you to like pretend that I'm a liberal cabinet minister and I want you to like question me right now and I want to see how I would do against you. Can you do that at all? <laughs> I couldn't do that to a friend. Oh, come on. Yes, like I'll pretend like we're talking about the budget or something and I, I want to see. I'll answer it as Justin Trudeau. All right. Um, what happened 100 years ago today? Today? I don't know. Am, am I answering it as Justin Trudeau now? Yeah, you got to answer the question. Answer oh my, the question. Okay. <laughs> uh, Mr. Speaker, I, I think that we know that the member opposite is uh, going down a road that Canadians don't want us to go down. And we've been very clear from the outset. We are here. What happened 100 years ago today? Look, the member is playing politics, Mr. Speaker. We are here today because the emergency benefit that we put in place is there to assist Canadians. And quite frankly, I'm not going to stand here and have this member go at me and my family. Anyway. He's, he's, he's a lot well, better this, than Justin Trudeau. This, from a, this prime minister that we have on air today is a former radio host. He doesn't know that 100 years ago today... We had the first radio broadcast oh in Canada. <laughs> Are you serious? Downtown Ottawa at Chateau Laurier, oh, members wow. of the Royal Society of Canada. Wow. Listening to a singer perform in Montreal, nearly 200 kilometers away. Wow. So uh, that was 100 years ago today. And, uh, and we're celebrating 100 years of radio by doing a podcast. Wow. We are indeed. And, and indeed, uh, I think, Jody, you, you did us proud by answering the question exactly how Justin Trudeau would have answered that question. <laughs> I feel Brilliant. sheepish. Master class. I feel sheepish now. Master class. Yeah, actually, that's what we should do is a master class. You do like opposition style things and I'll do government style things. And and Tony can be our mentor. <laughs> That's right. Tony's our mentor. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Pierre, well, we, we appreciate to... we appreciate your time. Uh, we wish you all the best. You're welcome back at any time, and feel free to uh, come down and visit. You know, actually, one quick Pierre story. The first time when I was running in the federal election, had Pierre down for a bunch of events to meet with uh, constituents and do some canvassing. And one of the first conversations we had with a business owner in downtown Belleville, and you'll probably remember this, Pierre, was about. His quest, Pierre's questions were all not about business, not about how things are going, but it was like, how did you get that reclaimed limestone that's on your walls? Because he was thinking about doing his basement. <laughs> Which, that's true. I remember it very well. <laughs> Which you ended up getting, I, I believe, in doing well. your basement, correct? Absolutely. No, there's some very beautiful limestone and old uh, uh, antique brick that you find in, in the streets of Belleville. So uh, I, I love the town. Great Ontario town. <laughs> Anyway, Pierre, blessings to you both. Thanks for having me on and uh, hope you are all happy and healthy. And uh, Tony, thanks for your many years of service in Parliament and Cabinet. Um, glad to hear you're doing well out in the Mistokas. It's my honor, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Pierre. Oh, all the very best. Well, the streak continues of unbelievable guests, Tony. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I like Pierre. I, I think you did really well on that uh, little back uh, sequence there where you pretended to be, you really got into it being Justin Trudeau. I'm, I'm very impressed. Well, you know what? I don't want to put you on the spot, but you knew how to tangle in question period. Do you want to, well, let's do it again. You throw, you're the opposition. I'll play a cabinet minister or even Trudeau. You ask me something about an item and let's, let's do a little role play right now, just before we head out. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I have a question for the prime minister. Uh, what did he know and when did he know it? 
Mr. Speaker, the member opposite knows that what he's asking is a completely trivial question in this situation. What we do know is we are here to support Canadians every day of their entire lives. For eternity, Mr. Speaker, we will be there. Unlike the member opposite, who, I may say, voted against increases for you, Canadians. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm getting... Uh... Uh, the, the the hairs uh, at the end of uh, my arm are standing on end now because I'm I'm getting uh, flashbacks. I don't know what's flashbacks and PTSD of being in the House of Commons. So thanks thanks for that, Jody. I really appreciate it. All right, Tony. Thanks uh, thanks so much uh, for setting that up. That was great. Quick thing too, we should yep. point out that when you come on this show, good things happen. Tell us a little bit about what happened to Victoria Banks there that was just on last week. Yeah, well, uh, it was just wonderful. Victoria Banks, of course, uh, the great uh, uh, guest that we had on last week. And she, of course, is a country uh, Western uh, singer in Nashville, uh, hails from uh, Muskoka. Uh, and uh, right after, right after she was on our program, she was a guest on NBC Songland. And in fact, NBC Songland said, Victoria Banks knows how to write the perfect country song. Nice. So that's what happens. You come on and another thing podcast and then bam, you're immediately a star is born and she's uh, being hailed across the United States as a great singer songwriter. So congratulations to Victoria for that. Now, I hate to mention our competition. We'll end on this. But do you think that if you were a guest like any guest on the Hurley Burley, do you think your career would skyrocket? Um, well, I, I listen, uh, I'm sure they've got a wonderful podcast, <laughs> but I don't think they've ever had a country singer on. So I don't I think, think so. One up on I don't it. think so. I don't think so. If you want to launch your career and another thing is the place to do it. So you got it. <laughs> all right, Tony, looking forward to connecting in person. We're going to do some golf soon. Uh, don't forget subscribe and all that fun stuff for the show. And I guess we'll talk in seven days and we will, and we'll, uh, We'll tell everybody about how the golf game goes. How's yeah, yeah, that? we'll break it down shot by shot. So that should take probably <laughs> yeah, about an be, hour. It'll or be so. a scintillating <laughs> podcast, I'm sure. All right, take care. Take care.